Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. When history determines the future. When history determines the future. Men and women, since really the beginning of time, have sought to predict the future, as you well know. None have ever come close simply by the fact that they're not God. And God says very specifically that he knows the end from the beginning. So we should not be shocked that God could predict things in the future and they absolutely come true. He never misses. He never can because he is God. Well, in the chapter before us this morning is one of the most unique in all of the Word of God. Simply because Daniel is hearing from an angel about future things. And he is actually recording it. What Daniel is writing is in the future to him in chapter 11. And some of it has been historically fulfilled, and we'll see that this morning. But the last ten verses of Daniel chapter 11 still lie in our own future. The assurance is, because the first 35 verses have been filled to the T, as we often say in our culture, we are absolutely confident that the last ten verses. This is a chapter that is not vague. It is a chapter that is specific. We can mark it historically, the first 35 verses. No one really argues about the fulfillment of these passages. What some do argue about is that it was impossible for Daniel to write it in the 6th century, and they move him back to the 2nd century and said that's how he did it. Now that we would disagree with because there's too much historical, archaeological proof that Daniel lived at the time the Bible says he does. And the Bible is the final authority. But no one really argues about the fulfillment of these predictions or prophecies as we would call them. And so Daniel has been revealing throughout the book in various chapters, beginning with the Babylonian Empire and says that will not last forever. We saw that in chapter 2. There will come another empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and it will not last forever because there will be a Grecian Empire, and Alexander the Great, who will come. And he will rule for a few years, and then he shall suddenly die. Greece will not stand forever because the Roman Empire will come in 68 B.C., and they will set up their own enormous empire. And that empire has lasted longer than any other. It's been somewhat dormant in modern times. But Daniel says that it will be resurrected. It will be the old Roman Empire that comes to life again in the end time, still future to us. And we see these rumbling of nations in alignment today. Some would be the European Union. We see some possibilities, but it's not clear to us in our modern day. What is clear, it will occur. And out of that revived Roman Empire will come a world ruler that this world has never seen. It will be far, he will be far more cunning and wicked than Alexander the Great or any other ruler, even of modern times, such as Hitler or anyone else. 
this man will be such a man that it will almost be Satan incarnate. And he will ravage the face of this earth for three and a half years. And Daniel tells us this. And when he comes to, Dan, to chapter 11, he does something that nowhere else does he do this. Because he's writing to encourage the Jewish people who are suffering at the hands of vicious rulers. And he writes, and you can understand from that perspective that the Jewish people who read the book of Daniel, even before the time of Christ, they would get great encouragement because they see that their nation is going to survive. They individually may not survive, but the nation will survive. If the nation survives, then it, it must be true. It must be real evidence that God's covenant with Israel is an everlasting covenant. And that's the issue. You see, all of world history and all of the future events of this world all center around the nation of Israel. You mark history by Israel. Now, the world doesn't do their history that way, but God does. And at the end of it, we find that God was right. Israel is the center of attention. Always has been, always will be. Because what is at stake is not Israel. What is at stake is God's covenant with Israel, God's promise. And that promise is unconditional. It's like that promise God gave to you and me at salvation. Because it's an unconditional covenant that God has made with you and me as well as with Israel that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Our salvation is secure. Even though there will come those times of enormous persecution. Have, and as Carl spoke of this morning, of the mass of people that are being martyred around the world today. As I mentioned several months ago, we have built a relationship with a man in the federal prison. Comes from Nigeria and he tells of a holocaust there with his own family. It's unbelievable. Until you read scripture and you begin to realize that this has been going on for centuries. It's unbelievable what man will do with man. So what you have are two enormous powers. In Daniel chapter 10, God seemingly pulls the curtain back and says, let me tell you, let me show you what goes on in the spiritual world. And in the spiritual world, the reality of the spiritual world, it's not a, it's not some spiritual thing that we normally talk about that's not really true. We're talking about true spirit warfare. And he tells us and gives us the concept that behind every nation are demonic beings who vie to influence the leaders of every nation. Obviously, they're under the control and hand of Satan himself. So you have this Satan, the god of this world, the god of this age, who is at war with God. That has been since the garden. It continues. Generally, you and I look at that and we see the curtain pulled and we don't, see, we just read in the paper, we see on news what nations are doing to one another. But when you pull that back, you, you see Satan for who he is. The last thing Satan wants is for Christ's kingdom to come to this earth. And so he does everything in his power to cause chaos and confusion. And if you look at the world scene today with the nations all around the world, you say, this is confusing, this is weird, this is chaos. 
Can we not get it together? Why cannot we come up with peace? Why cannot Jews and Palestinians have peace? It's answered in the Scriptures. There are two opposing forces. With Israel, God has a covenant. And Satan, the last thing that he wants is peace with Israel. And so it would only be natural that he's deceptive, he's coming, cunning, and he's wicked, and he desires to cause confusion everywhere and with every nation. We saw that somewhat vividly clear in chapter 10. Now then, there are many who have looked at these 35 verses that we're going to look at this morning, and we will get through them before the snow melts, I promise you. Uh, Many people have questioned not the authenticity of these 35 verses, but what's the importance of it? What's the relevance of it? I mean, you can sit down in your devotions and read the 35 verses. Now, there's 45 altogether. We're just going to take the first 35 because those are historical. Those have already been fulfilled, and we want to see that. But people would say, you know, that's just history. Well, number one, let's realign our thinking. Number one is it's God's Word, so it's important. That's really the end of the issue. The issue is I should learn all I can about these 35 verses simply because God wrote them down. God never writes anything that's not important to me or to you. Number two is it is going to bring encouragement to the Jewish people that God has a covenant with them. That's an eternal covenant. And number three, and probably for you and me sitting in the pew today and I standing here, the importance is, wow, this is really true. There is not any conceivable way on this planet that the Bible cannot be true. It's impossible. Because as you and I look at chapter 11, we'd say, only God could do this. As we read verse by verse, 35 of them, some have said, there are 350 prophecies fulfilled in these 35 verses. That's astounding. And as we look historically, we know who fulfilled these prophecies. We know the names. It's incredibly precise, as basically nowhere else found in all of the Word of God. How privileged we are as God's people to have all of his word, the 66 books. Well, let's begin, and let's begin with the big picture. What are we looking at? An earth without God's kingdom is an earth without peace. There will never be peace, my friend, until Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. Try as you may, and should we try? Yes, it's better than not trying. But we should realize that there will never be peace among the nations until Christ comes. There are two opposing worlds and two opposing worldviews and two opposing world entities. It is Satan versus God. And God in his sovereignty has now purposed to allow Satan to rule almost with freedom. And therefore, we look at our globe and we see chaos. We see confusion and we see disruption and sickness and crime that's exploding upon us. It shouldn't be shocking to us as Christians. And it will not end until the Prince of Peace comes. Let's begin with Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. 
Some align this with chapter 10, because we know the chapter divisions are not inspired, but be that as it may, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, as reference to the angel of chapter 10, that is, giving these predictions to Daniel. It may have been Gabriel, the name is not given here. But in the first year, so he dates it, Darius the Mede, arose I, the angel, arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. That's the latter part of chapter 10. That's Persia. There were some in Persia. Cyrus somehow, some way, finds some passion for the nation of Israel, God's people. But it won't last for long. And so the angel just simply makes a statement to Daniel that to Darius the Mede, he arose to be, he arose to be an encouragement, a protection for this king so that God will accomplish his purposes through him. Now, if you're interested at all, and you may not be, and that's okay, but we're going to start at 536 B.C., and for these first three verses, it's going to take a big chunk of time, 536 really down to 335 B.C. So you've got over 200 years here. Now, later on, as we get closer to verse 35, we're going to get down to 10 years and 5 years. And so you see this huge chunk of time, and then as we get closer to the end of the chapter, we see just amazingly how God is clocking his time. So let's begin with verse 2. And now I, reference to the angel, will tell you, Daniel, the truth. I'm going to reveal to you truth, the events for the next 400 years. That's like saying, I would be standing here today in this context and saying, for the next 400 years, I'm going to give you the course of world events. And I'm going to be very, very specific so that when these events occur, you won't be able to miss it. You can plug in the names. You'd say, there's no way you're going to do that. And that is true. But God is going to do that through the angel to Daniel, and Daniel's recording it. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. That means after Cyrus. Then a fourth. His name was Exerces the first. He made, actually, he was the one that made Esther, if you'll remember in the book of Esther, his queen. Xerxes will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. That simply means that this Persian king is going to torment the daylights out of Greece because Daniel's already said that Greece is going to bring, what, the Medo-Persian empire down. And so God allows and permits this Persian king to just torment. History records this, just torments Greece just ags them on to come and have war with him. And we will find that he does. So this fourth one, this fourth Xerxes, will gain far more riches than all of them as soon as he becomes strong with through his riches. He will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. He raised an army of a million soldiers. Can you imagine that in that day? And sought to conquer Greece, but was defeated in 480 B.C. This stirred up a lot of animosity. The Greeks now really hate the Persians. And they're going to come after them. Just exactly like you see today. 
these nations aligning themselves and hating one another and saying, you trampled on me, now I'm coming after you. We see that century after century after century. What's behind all of that? Satan causing chaos. He does not want peace. He doesn't have the ability to bring peace. And therefore his tactic is to cause chaos among the nations of the world. No religion has ever been able to put these nations together. In verse 3, And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. At that particular point, there was no one else in history but Alexander the Great. And it says that he will rule. He has a great desire to conquer the known world. In verse 4, but as soon as he, Alexander, has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the camp, the compass. The angel tells to Daniel, in probably about 538 B.C., that this is going to occur in the 300s. And this king is going to be cut off. You and I know that Alexander the Great was conquering the world, got all the way to India, and then wept like a baby because he said, there's nothing else for me to conquer. And he went back to Babylon. And there he died. He died because of disease from his sexual immorality, his, his alcoholism, and just living the fast life. He dies at the age of 33. Well, none of his sons are able to take over the kingdom, so it's proportioned out to his four generals. Well, isn't that interesting? His kingdom will be broken up. It shouldn't be if his sons take over, but his sons do not take over. It was broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. Though not to his own descent. You see how precise this is? Don't miss this. This is your God. This is not some history lesson. This is God saying, see, when you give yourself to someone other to ruin your personal life than God, you're going to get chaos. There's going to be wickedness. And there will be no peace in your life. And if you do have peace, it will be a false peace. Watch out. This is the big message. Unless Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth, there is no peace. And so his four generals divide up the kingdom. The Sander, he took Greece and Macedon. Lysimachus, he took Turkey and Asia Minor, basically as we would know it today. Seleucus obviously took Syria and the nations to the east. Babylon as well. And the Ptolemy took Egypt and Palestine. God is putting all of these things. God's allowing Satan some room, but God masterly is sovereign and he's positioning it because there's going to have to be a Greek language that is known to the, to most of the known world so that the gospel in the first century can spread like wildfire. It won't happen through Hebrew or Aramaic, but it will through the Greek language. You begin to see as a Christian how God Two, three hundred years begins to position the nations of the world. God knows exactly. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly his plan. Who will be in control of Palestine 
when Christ is born. Well, quickly, let's continue. Nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Alexander did not determine who would get his kingdom. It came from a power struggle in which his own family was murdered, and the empire then was handed over to his four generals. Now, to show the preciseness of this, one thing we have to keep in mind, how God does this. You will read, especially in Daniel, you also read it in Ezekiel and sometimes in Isaiah, it'll talk about the king of the north and the king of the south, and that can be kind of confusing. Unless you understand that God gives geographic location in regards to where Israel is. So if you can picture in your mind's eye where Israel is, that little tiny strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea to the west and the Jordan River to the east, about like Rhode Island, that's God's territory. That's given to Israel. And in that he says anything to the north, that he's talking about the north of Israel. He's talking about the south, he's talking about to the south of Israel. That's how God marks it out. And that's how God explains it. Uh, we got a map here. It's not the best map, but we're having a little trouble with the camera, so I don't know how clear that is to you. But you can see the Seleucid Empire, that the bold print there more to the right of the screen. It was an enormous empire. And the other general was Ptolemy. And he had more of the Egypt. And now you can see that little strip of land. You can probably see a little part of the Mediterranean Sea word there. And then you can see a little bit of Jerusalem just to the left of the Arabian Desert. See that little narrow strip? And armies just come through and go down to Egypt. Egypt comes up fighting the kings of the north. The north comes down to fight the kings of the south. And they're just constantly trampling over who? Israel. We'll see that here. Okay, we can turn the lights back on. Not the best map in the world, but you probably already know that. Okay, now, when we start verse 5, we're at 323 B.C. And we're going to go down to about 80 years in the next five to six verses. The mighty angel tells Daniel now. Here's the prediction to Daniel. Daniel writes it down. After the division of the Grecian Empire, now you've got four generals. Then the king of the south, Ptolemy the first, will grow strong. Actually, his dynasty lasts for 300 years. That's longer than the United States has been in existence. But the king of south, Ptolemy the first, will grow strong. Along with one of his princes, another general is Seleucus the first. He actually was weak and had trouble controlling Syria. So what he did, he came down to Egypt and said, can you help me out? And he said, sure, stay with me. Let me help you out. So while he did that, he assisted the Seleucus. And by that time, Seleucus had enough money and enough manpower that he went back to control Syria. And it says his domain will be a great dominion indeed. His dynasty actually lasted for over 200 years. And then it says in verse 6, after some years, and we can mark that off, you can put there in the margins of your Bible, it's 50 years, we know how long it is. After some years, 50 years, they, Ptolemy and Seleucus, would form an alliance. They, nations love this, because the more alliance we can form, the more powerful we will be. The problem is we can't get along with each other in the alliance. 
In World War II, we had an alliance, but it didn't last forever. The war was over, and now we get back to fussing and fighting, right? Because there is the prince and power of this air, the ruler of this world. There will never be a longevity of peace. Now then, so they will form an alliance. Now watch this. And the daughter of the king of the south, Berenice, she was the daughter of Ptolemy II, will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Now you can know what's going to come on the scene here. If my daughter can marry your son, then we will have descendants from that marriage that are common to both countries, and that will help our alliance. Well, that's always Satan's devices. It, doesn't always, it, does, it very seldom works well, and it doesn't work well very long, as you will see. But she will not, the scripture says, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he, the northern king's son, remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as the one who supported her in those times. You say, what's that? Well, the son in the north of the king is Antigus Theos better known as Antigus the God. He thought he was good. Antigus the God. He's married to Laodice. And now this lady from the south comes up, Berenice, and so the king of the south says, let my daughter marry you, but there's a problem here. He's already what? Well, that's not a problem in those days. It's not a problem today either. Sadly to say. So he divorces her in order to marry the daughter of the king of the south. The problem is, Berenice's father dies. So what's happening to this alliance? There isn't one. Well, undoubtedly, the king of the north now, the son, is not very happy with Berenice. So he just decrees her to be a concubine. And he goes back and takes Laodice as his wife. You'd say, well, that was nice of him. He's got it right. You ever hear about greed and vengeance? Well, Laodice, she poisons Berenice. And she poisons her husband. And then she sets up her own son as the king. This goes on and on and on. Some of you history buffs, you know that. But isn't it amazing that the angel said to Daniel 200 years before this? Let me read it again to you. Right in the middle of verse 6. But she will not retain her position or power. Why? She's going to get poisoned. Nor will he remain with his power. Why? Because he's going to get poisoned. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her. What happened? He died. As well as the ones who supported her in those times. Satan's world system, my friend, is full of death and chaos. Always has been, always will be. Why? Because it's the ruler of this age. You see, that's the reason why you have these two opposing entities vying for world rulership. Behind the curtain is the god of this age, Satan, who's trying to do all that he can... 
There was a time when the last thing he, he sought all that he could do to get Christ from going to the cross. He offered him everything he had. Remember the temptations? That was all about, really, the core of the temptations of Christ was the fact is that Satan will say, if you will not go to the cross, if you will bow your knee to me, I'll give you everything. I just don't want you to die for the sins of the world. And after Christ died for the sins of the world and rose again the third day, now that was over with. Now what Satan's plan is, I can't take your salvation. There is eternal salvation through Christ and Him alone. But I will seek, better believe it, Christians, that Satan's top design for you is to create havoc and confusion and wickedness. And He'll come at you with vengeance. That's the reason why you have temptations. And God lovingly orchestrates those, not allowing us to go through those temptations that are more than we can bear. No, no, no. God's still sovereign. But God's using us for our goods. Satan uses the temptations to destroy us. God uses it to make us strong by trusting in him. Verse 7, But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, Berenice's brother, and he will come. He's going to get even with Laodice, the wife. And he comes against their army, the Syrian army, and enters the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. He does. He kills her. He wipes her out. But while doing that in verse 8, also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take back to the south. You'd say, well, wonder how much he took. We know how much he took. It's estimated he took a nine, write it down, and we'll get it right here, nine and a half billion dollars in gold according to today's currency nine and a half billions of dollars that's a lot of money isn't it? it's almost our national debt that's not all he took back silver he had so much silver that according to the standards today it was worth a hundred and eighty billions of dollars this man, after he killed Laodice, went back with 190 billions of dollars. That's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight. In verse 9, then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south. You took our stuff, I'm coming after you. This was the next son. Callanicus. He goes after the south to retrieve and to take over Egypt. The king of the north always loves Egypt. He loves to have control. He never does. But you see these generation after generation fighting up to the north, back to the south, up to the north, back to the south. You'd say, well, okay, I get the prediction deal. I get that. But these are all foreshadowings of a time that still is, lies ahead of us. And next week we will see that. You will look for some of these similar things, but you'll ne- we will not understand it unless we understand the historical part of it. All right, let's take a look at it. Now we're down to 224. And we're going to now take about 19 years for the next four or five verses. The... 
So this mighty angel predicts and tells Daniel, now his sons, Catalanicus's sons, will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. So he's marching south. Now, there's some turmoil here, and Callinicus's oldest son was poisoned by the generals because they saw he could never lead the armies of the north. He's worthless. He's not smart. So how do we get rid of him? I would just poison him. And obviously he dies. But the youngest son becomes Antigus the Great. This is the one that's going to sire Antigus Epiphanes, the foreshadowing of the Antichrist. And he wins a big battle at Gaza over the Egyptians. I think we have a map of that, just kind of give you a location here. Do we have a map of that? If you go down to the left of Jerusalem, uh, almost to the Nile River there, the Gaza Strip, you hear of that today in the news with Israel and Palestine, right? Well, this is where this enormous battle, you, you can take, put the lights back on. This is where that enormous battle, and the king of the south in verse 12 will be enraged. He's been defeated. He is enraged. He goes forth and fights with the king of the north. Then the latter, Antigus the Great, will raise a great multitude, but the multitude will be given to the hand of the former. The Egyptians now defeat the Syrians. And when the multitude is carried away, several thousands of the Syrians were taken prisoner. His heart, Ptolemy's heart, will be lifted up. This was a point in history where Ptolemy, if he would have gone after Antigus the Great, he could have wiped him out. He was that close. Now watch this. He was that close. All he had to do was go after him. Because the king of the north was suffering, he had taken great losses. And you know what? (laughs) Ironically, this king headed back to Egypt. Why? He had killed over 10,000 Syrians. He wanted to get back for the celebration. He had won one battle, and he wanted to go back for the celebration and drunken orgy, sexual pleasures, and he could have had the whole known world at that time. Listen. When you and I follow the schemes of Satan, it never works out well. Chaos, wickedness, cunningness, lying, cheating, deception, murder. It's all part of the ruler of this world. Now we can stop here and make an application easily. Who do I follow? Even as a believer, who do I follow? Who rules in my heart? Jesus may be my Savior, but who rules my heart? And I think of this, and I'd say, you know, there's no exceptions to this in any of God's Word. There's no exception. If the ruler of this world rules and influences my heart, even as a believer, what should I expect in life? What every other human being has expected in God. From this point on to verse 35, we are giving so much detail of Antigus the Great. It baffles our minds. He ruled for 37 years. Notice in verse 13. For the king of the north, which is Antigus the Great, will again 
raise a greater multitude than the former. This is 300 years before this ever came upon the world scene. And Daniel is writing this. Do you wonder back in chapters 8, 9, and 10 why Daniel turned pale when he saw this mass destruction and how it will come upon his own nation? And it says in 13, For the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, will again raise a greater multitude than the former army. And after an interval of some years, we know it to be 14 years if you want to mark it in there, he will press on with a great army and with much equipment. So he's going after the, the south. And Tigus the Great learns of Ptolemy the Fourth dying, and get this, now sits on the throne his five-year-old son. What a great time to take Egypt, because the king is a five-year-old son. Sounds a little unusual, doesn't it? Now notice in verse 14, the angel continues to give Daniel his predictions. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. There is internal fighting, the violent ones among your people. Now the angel says, Daniel, you, you Jews, there are Jews in Egypt. And they don't know who to side with. If they side with the southern king and Antigus the Great comes down and conquers them, they're going to be losers both ways, unless they believe Antigus the Great is the greater army and they're going to win, so now they're going to cause chaos. And this internal struggle within the leadership of the king of the south, and Jews are a part of it. Well, let's see how this works out. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, which is Sidon. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. What has happened is now Egypt realizes their dire needs, and so they begin to make allegiance with Rome. Now God begins to bring Rome into the picture. This is not without God's understanding, obviously. But even with those choice, and even with a general Scopus is his name, as Antigus the Great captures the city. So Antigus the Great is so powerful that he wipes out Egypt, he wipes out some of the Romans as well. And just to make life miserable, those who did survive the battle, of those of the south, he sent home stark naked with not one stitch of clothing. Well, if you want to enrage a nation, do that to your people. Now you can guess who is upset. Verse 16, but he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time. So what Rome does is to begin to let Antigus the Great to say, don't mess with Egypt anymore. Now, they've just been defeated, but they're sounding their drums, they're rattling their sabers, and they're saying, don't mess. If you mess with them, we're going to get involved. Doesn't that sound like modern times? You know, don't mess with Israel, if you do, you're going to face the U.S., right? Satan's world. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, which is Israel, with destruction in his hand. So Antigus the Great settles in at Israel. He just camps out there, and he doesn't destroy Israel because he's been thankful that there was Jews in Egypt that caused all that chaos. And so 
he seemingly lets them do what they want to do. So Antiochus considers his options. He doesn't want to come against Rome and Egypt together. So the only thing that he can think to do is, well, let's set up another marriage. And here we go again. Satan really doesn't have new devices. He just comes up with more of the same. In verse 17, the mighty angel now tells to Daniel what will occur next. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace. This is the northern king, Antigus the Great which he will put into effect, he will also give him, the king of the south, the daughter of the woman, to ruin it. And Tigus the great thinking is this way. If the king of the south will marry my daughter, then her allegiance will be with me, and her sons will grow up and bear offspring, and then that will tighten my hold. So I'm going to go down and be deceptive. I'm looking for peace. What does the Antichrist look for in the future? Peace. Is it peace or a deception? Well, we know from Matthew 24 and 25, it's a huge deception. See how it follows here. So what Antigus does, he offers his daughter Cleopatra. Now, don't go to the movie. There were a lot of Cleopatras. This is not the Cleopatra of Caesar and Mark Antony. This was a sealing peace treaty to stop fighting and live in peace with each other. And so the marriage occurs. Ptolemy V is seven years old and Cleopatra is 13. Wonderful marriage. And Tiger's plan was that his daughter would then be the spy. The only problem with this, you see, you can't control life. God does. So Cleopatra likes her husband and she cuts off her relationship with her father and gives her allegiance to the southern king. And Tigus the Great then will turn his face to the coastland since he knows that failed. Now he says, I'll just get even with Rome. So I'll start just going down the coastline, burning all the cities that Rome has already taken. And when the attempted peace treaty was over, and that was tried, Rome brings in their general, who is a new Navy commander with 300 ships, and he just wipes the naval force of Antigus the Great. He only leaves him about 20 ships in 19. So he, Antigus the Great, will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. But he will stumble and fall and be found no more. So as Antigus the Great heads back to his hometown, back to his country, Syria, he says, what I need to do is I need to somehow come up with an allegiance with Rome. So he makes a peace offering to Rome. Now, he's beat. He has basically nothing left. And Rome says, yeah, we'll listen to you. I tell you what, if you want us to be friends, you must give up all your ships but ten. He only had twenty. You must give up most of your territory, but we want Israel. Can you imagine that little strip of land? wonder what that's all about. I mean, you have the whole world. Why would you want this little strip of land no bigger than Rhode Island? Do you begin to see, my friend, that Satan's intent all along is not for the world specifically. It's for Israel. Why? Because God has a covenant with Israel and Satan hates covenants. And Satan wants to do all that he can to embarrass the God of the universe. 
And so they said, even though we'll let you have ten ships, you're going to have to give us a huge tribute. Taxes. And we're going to tax you excessively for 12 years. And Tigus the Great tries to pay all of this, but he realizes halfway through that he's not going to be able to have the finances to do it. So he begins to raid his own God temples. And somebody mistakes him for a robber and kills him. Robbing his own temples to find enough finances to pay Rome. Is that not what the angel said? So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his safety of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Now we're down to 186. In verse 20, then in his place, one will arise. Then in the place of Antigus, the great one will send an oppressor through the jewel of the kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. And Tigus, the great's oldest son, Seleucus IV, struggled also to continue to pay the taxes until they completed their 12 years. And so somebody came along and poisoned him because he was a bad ruler. He couldn't pay the taxes. In his place, this is what the angel says in verse 21, in his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. It is not legal, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. He is known in world history as the most wicked and cunning human being to have ever lived. In world history, he doesn't hold a matchstick. Six million Jews slaughtered is horrendous, but it doesn't match the battles that went on before the birth of Christ. That's small stuff. That's small stuff in that light. In verse 22, the angel continues to mark out events. The overflowing forces of the Egyptian army will be flooded away before Epiphanes and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant was the high priest in Israel. And he was murdered by Epiphanes because he wanted the high priest's brother to rule. And his name was Jason, and he took him. But Jason, the reason why Epiphanes wanted him, because it was Jason who was Jewish, was the high priest, who then said, we have to adopt the Grecian culture. And this is how Rome, then the Hellenist. Now, this is not some strange thing that happens in history. This is ordained of God. This is how it's developing. A Hellenist was a Jewish person who was entrenched in Greek culture. And they were always at odds with what Hebrew Jews would have said is the pure race. And they were always fighting and fussing with one another. In verse 22, then, as we have just stated, we find this scenario in verse 23. After an alliance is made with Ptolemy VI, which is in Tigus Epiphanes' nephew, because he was the sister of Cleopatra. You say, what's the connection there? Now you've got the north and the south. Now Cleopatra's son has matured. And now let's see what the deal is. Epiphanes will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Why a small army? In a time, verse 24, in a time of tranquility, peace, he will enter the richest parts of the realm of Egypt. 
And he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. Why? He wants mercenaries. He's paying the soldiers off. Come and join me. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He, Epiphanes, will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, Ptolemy the sixth, with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. You know what happens? His soldiers desert him out of money and join the north. In verse 26, those who eat his choice foods will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. And as for the kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. Epiphanes, we know historically, and Ptolemy the sixth sat down and just lied to each other. And they said, oh, this is how we can put it all together. And each one knew they were going to destroy the other one. Let me stop. Make a point. If you and I compromise with the world, then you will get what the ruler of this world designs. And that is chaos, destruction, wickedness. And the very best you can have, which isn't much, is false peace. It's like two people in a marriage. You'd say, well, you get up one morning, you've been fussing for days and weeks, Well, we resolved it all. Let's quit fighting. Nate and I have said that. Just get up one morning and say, well, you know, after several years, you say, well, maybe that issue wasn't as big as I thought it was. Not years, but you were supposed to laugh, but I guess you've all gone to sleep on my history lesson. The problem is it's a false peace. You know why it's a false peace? Because you haven't solved anything. You just got tired of fighting, and you decide not to fight anymore, and you say, we're at peace. No, you're not. It's a false peace. You haven't solved one solitary thing. And you know what happens? Next month, you got to what? You're at it again, and again, and again, and again. And then Satan comes in and says, well, it must be because I don't love you anymore. I lost my love for you. Then you go to the divorce court and say, well, I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. And on and on it goes. Just a pure barrel of satanic deception. And we fall for it. This is exactly what is happening here. And so, in verse 27, their hearts will be intent on evil. They will speak lies to each other at the same table as they sought to resolve their differences. But it will not succeed, the angel says to Daniel, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. You can't, now notice that, mark it, you cannot have world peace because it's not the appointed time. God still has Calvary, the cross to come, the church age, the tribulation hour, the second coming of Christ, his millennial kingdom. Satan would have loved for this to happen because it had eradicated everything else in that sense. And God says, no, you're not going to have peace. No matter how hard you try, because peace without God never lasts. In verse 28, then he, Epiphanes, returned to his land to the north with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. What is that Holy Covenant? God's covenant with Israel. Here it comes. So he has to go through what narrow piece of land? 
Israel to get back to the north. You can't, you say, why don't he just go on the east side of the Jordan River? Well, how are you going to take a million soldiers through the desert and survive in those days? You've got to go where there's water and where there's food. So when he returns, what happened was, as if Pippinese was marching up through Israel, he heard a rumor that, and the rumor was that he had died. And the Jews were so happy and so excited that they went down to the temple and to the city of Jerusalem and found some Syrians and kicked them out and said, we don't have anything to worry about because Epiphanes is dead. The king is dead. And so they got rid of those sorry Syrians. And Epiphanes was alive. And you can imagine he was a very hot-tempered man. And when he got to Jerusalem, watch out. On his way through, he stopped long enough to eradicate 40,000 Jews. He looted the city and sold many into slavery and set up his army and let them rape all the women they could find. That's Satan's life. That's Satan's mindset. You see, look, folks, it's not about the soldiers. It's not about the nations. It's about Satan says, God, I put it in your face, and what are you going to do about it? That's what your life and my life is about. Whatever tactic Satan has, he desires one thing. I think it's all about me. Oh, he'll bring me down, and I'll have to, I'll have to leave the pastorate. Well, that, I hope that doesn't happen, but it could. Take heed lest you fall. But who am I to think I'm the big guy that he's after? If he can bring me or you down in our Christian life, he says, Now, God, what do you think about that? See how I've brought shame to your name? That's your child. And we think it's all about us. When he hears us squawking and battling and lying and gossiping, Satan says, Tell you, God, you got a problem here. Well, lastly and quickly, 29. This angel tells Daniel in 536 B.C., write this down, Daniel. At the appointed time, he, the Pippines is not dead, he will return and come into the south. He's going to go back north, lick his wounds, and come back south because there's not a treaty, and he knows it. But the last time, it will not turn out the way he did before. He will not be victorious. By this time, two of Ptolemy's nephews have settled their differences. Now they share the same throne in Egypt. They have called for Rome for help, and Rome responds because what's Rome's thought? To help poor Egypt? We just love you guys so much. We just want to be nice to you. No. They want Rome, and they want Syria. They want the world. Let's see what happens here. So they appealed. The south appeals to Rome for help. Rome responds. They meet Epiphanes at the city of Alexander in Egypt. And they come out and face him. They said, and history records this with a lot of specifics. But they come out and said, the Roman Senate has said, you either go back or you will meet all of our forces. And then history records that the Roman general took out his sword and drew a circle around Epiphanes' feet. 
And he says, you don't step out of that circle until you tell me what your intentions are. Intentions were not as Rome liked. He would have died in the circle. So Epiphanes is not stupid. So his stated intentions is, I will leave and go north. Good move. Well, guess which way he has to go. He has to go back through Israel again. And when he does, there's a lot more here to share with you, but let me just share the the basics here. When he goes back through, he still hates Israel. Epiphanes is the best foreshadowing of the Antichrist yet to come that we have in history. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25 in the book of Revelation. The last three and a half years is called the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. And it's all about just destroying. It's like a dog with a dull rag. Just ripping and shredding Jewish people to pieces. As we have mentioned before, two-thirds of the Jewish nation will die. That's over, by today's population, that's over 10 million Jews will die in three and a half years by the hands of the Antichrist. That is mass destruction. Why? Just the hatred of Jews? No. It's the hatred of God who has a covenant with the Jews. You see, I am so human-minded and focused. It's all about people. God says, wake up, Don, and look up. The hatred of the world is not about Jews. It's not about blacks. It's not about any color. It's not about race. It's about God. And Satan will use anyone that he can to cause chaos and shame to God. Does he use you? Does he use me? Well, he sure would love to. And so when he comes through Israel, he does something that's deplorable. Comes, he outlaws the Jewish religion, replaces it with what kind of religion? Obviously, Greece. He outlawed circumcision, the reading of the scriptures, and the observance of the Sabbath. If you look at the book of Revelation, you say, My goodness, that's happening again. Yes, what is God telling us? So he will come back and show regard for those because there were many Jewish people who departed from the faith and took up Grecian culture and took up their religion. And you will find that in the tribulation hours we will learn next week. In verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up an abomination of desolation. Why? Because they will force the Jews to sacrifice pigs on the altar. That's the reason why Jesus recalls this term to be used of the future. An abomination, that's an abomination. That's a gross thing. Abomination which causes desolation. Why? Nobody shows up at the temple. It's empty. It's desolate. That's the idea of the term. In verse 34, now when they fall, they will be granted little help. And this is where the Hasseans come in and the Maccabees that you read of. But many of them are full of hypocrisy. But many of them are true to the faith. They fight the Syrians for a hundred years. And you know, they don't do bad. In fact, 
the Maccabeans, territorial-wise, almost took all the land that David had in his kingship. They were good guerrilla fighters. But it wouldn't last. And finally, Rome conquers. Some of those who have insight will fall, verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Who's the them? Israel. God will still purify his nation through the tragedies of the world until that final time when he will purge the nation after two-thirds are wiped out and only a third are left. Zechariah the prophet says in that day they will look to the return of Christ and say, My Lord, our Lord and our Redeemer, our Savior. And the nation will be rebirthed with those third. And Christ will take about 75 days and establish the millennial kingdom. You know what one of the qualities of the millennial kingdom is? God rules. Anybody remember what happens to Satan for the thousand years? He's put in bondage for a thousand years. And when he's in bondage, guess what happens on earth? Peace. Because of the Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know about you. You may be bored to death. And that's okay. That's all right. I've read this many times and been bored to death. (laughs) But when I align my thinking to say, if it's in there, it has to have a huge significance. Because... John says if everything had been written about Jesus Christ that he did, even this universe wouldn't be able to hold the what? So what God put in there for you and me to know must be very, very what? Spatial. And what we see here, what I'd like for you to take home with you this hour are two lessons. The two lessons are this. Without God ruling in our hearts, there can be no true peace in our life. You can bank on that. You can take that one home and put it on your mirror and read it every day. It is true. It will be true for every day of your life, and it is true for me. Without God ruling and reigning in my heart, even as a believer, there will never be true peace in my life. And I've seen that for 40 years. True, born-again believers. At periods of time, it's happened in my own life. Where's the peace? The Spirit of God says, look at your life, dummy. He doesn't say dummy, but look at your life. It's not a big secret, Don. No wonder you don't have peace. And number two, without God ruling in our church, there can only be Satan's chaos and false peace. And that's true. And that's true in the world as well. These are living principles that come out of Romans chapter 11, the first 35 verses. So what's my response this morning? What is my response to who God is? Who is he to me? How do I respond in worship? I can sing songs, and that's great, and it should be, and that is worship. I can read the Word of God, and that is worship, giving honor to his scriptures. But also it's when I respond to him. What do I respond to all of this? God, I thank you for your clarity, if nothing else. 
My foolish ways will always bring me misery. And Lord, how you keep your covenant, even when your children misbehave, even when you keep your covenant with me of eternal life, even when I misbehave. And Lord, one day it will not be like this. One day we will live through the millennial kingdom ruling and reigning with Christ. And then that merges into the eternal state. And I will never, ever be awake. I always say wake up, but I don't know we're going to wake up in heaven. <laughs> but whatever our, however our existence is in heaven, I'll never have to pause a moment and say, I think that's a temptation. I think I just did something wrong. You and I will never experience conviction in heaven. But thank God we do now. So that God can have our lives. What about your life, my friend? Maybe you come in this morning and say, I don't know Christ. Maybe someday I'll think about it. Well, let me help you. What God says to you this morning is, He doesn't invite you to Himself. Acts 20.21, God commands you to repent. And He commands you to place your faith in Christ. Those are not invitations. I know that's our cultural way of doing it. I want to invite you to Christ. Take it or leave it. Make up your mind. Think about it. God commands you. Now, can you reject today? Yeah. But it won't be because you never were commanded to do right. I command you to repent, to place your faith in Christ. And Paul said that to both Jew and Gentile. For us as Christians, wow. Lord, as I read the paper, it comes alive. As I listen to Fox News or CNN, it comes alive. There, Satan is a master of misery. Let's pray. Father, we pray most of all in this moment for those who may be with us who do not know you. And I would ask, Lord, right where they are seated, right there where they would say, God, I believe, I believe I've read that. I've, I know that's true. You command me to repent. You command me to change from my father the devil to my father God. And I will do that because I will place my faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know a lot, but I know that. And the best I can understand, that's what your scripture says. So I'm going to take the first step, and I'm going to, I'm going to do that by God's grace. And so, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I am yours. You change me however you wish. And I, by your enablement, will obey. And I will worship you, for you created me to worship you. And Father, for those of us who are believers, may we ask ourselves, are we the agents of chaos and corruption and gossiping and lying and cheating? And it brings shame to you, and Satan knows that. Father, if that would be the case with any person, may we confess that right where we sit. We know, Father, we will not be perfect, but we can be blameless, and we can be wise and alert 
to Satan's devices. So, Father, we humbly desire to worship you with our thoughts. And in these next 15, 20 seconds, as we sit in silence, may you listen to every heart that is responding to you. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.